Hey folks, this is the Contextual Insurgent Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Smith. I'm an activist, an analyst, a writer, and a sensemaker. I'm a Republican, a former SFGOP Central Committee Delegate, where I was the Deputy Vice Chair of Communications. As California GOP endorsed State Senate candidate, where I managed to win 11% of the vote in San Francisco, which, trust me, is better than average. I've also been involved with the firearms community and Second Amendment rights. I was on the cover of Time Magazine in November of 2018 for the Guns in America issue. But I'm probably best known for my free speech activism and facing off with the hard lefties like Antifa in California and the Pacific Northwest since 2017. The general topic of this podcast series will be politics in the current culture war as seen from my unique, rather hands-on experience and knowledge. But I also intend to include a practical element focused on giving you the conceptual tools to build towards true grassroots, nonviolent political change. You may have noticed lefties usually seem to get what they want regardless of how elections go. I want to help you change that. You can also sign up for my Substack newsletter at contextualinsurgent.substack.com. I have a weekly newsletter that looks back at some of the highlighted stories of the week and gives you some feedback and analysis of what's happening. If you'd like to support my work, I have a Patreon at patreon.com backslash eesmith4. That's the number four. I also have a cash app at dollar sign eesmith4. Again, that's the number four. For the cost of a mocha frappuccino once a month, you can support my work, which is ultimately about helping you. Hello, friends. Welcome back to my podcast, and thanks for joining me. This podcast will be released on Christmas Eve morning, so let me start off by wishing everyone a Merry Christmas. This episode is going to be more of a free-flowing riff on several different topics I want to cover. I'm not going to be focused on any one specific historical episode or illustrating specific tactics or strategies. I'm kind of switching things up. Again, I I have said from the beginning I was going to be kind of experimenting and adjusting things. And, you know, I've kind of stepped back for a couple weeks and focused more on my writing as I was trying to sketch out some of the different things I wanted to do with this podcast. And I've had really great feedback from everyone But, you know, I'm always adjusting and tweaking, and, you know, things are going to be evolving as we go along. Moving forward, I'm going to start splitting this podcast into two parallel tracks. I'm going to have kind of a regular numbered season episodes, which are more casual and free-flowing, and it's going to be kind of an adaptation of my weekly Substack newsletter, where if if you follow me on there, I link to a bunch of different things that happen that I think are interesting or educational and I break them down into kind of more the nuts and bolts of what happens whether if it's something the hard left is doing um, something activists are doing patriots are doing lots of different things and you know it's useful in a written format because I can link pictures and I can explain the photographs and the videos that people are seeing that's more nuts and bolts and immediate but when I'm going to focus with the podcast, because obviously I can't show you a photo of a podcast, I want to start, you know, I'm going to link to these things that have happened and talk about them. And it's going to be more current events, but I'm going to try to get more of an abstract picture and contextualize it within my experience. But it's going to be a slightly different framing because it's a verbal and not written. So because I can't actually show you the pictures, I'm going to have to try to focus on different things. The other track is going to be continuing with the season format that I've been doing. Again, I'm adjusting and tweaking and learning as we go and just kind of experimenting. So if you want me to change something, just let me know. Like I said, this is my very first podcast I've been doing. So I've just been having fun trying to get educational stuff across, help people try different things, different formats. But each 
each of the regular season episodes is going to be more immediate on like one topic and it's going to be more of a nuts and bolts concrete dissection of that topic with a lot of action items and trying to contextualize that for example like on the season track the more academic type digging into something track educational track it's um i'm going to be talking about the battle of blair mountain versus the battle of athens which and it's really interesting because those are two armed conflicts against government agents the battle of athens if you're a right-leaning person you've almost certainly heard of it because it's legendary especially in the gun community it's when right after world war ii a bunch of veterans there was a lot of electoral fraud happening in, ten in rural tennessee so they took a bunch of guns down there and basically seized control of the voting of the of the jail took control of the you know the ballot boxes counted everything in front of everyone that's a very famous one because it's very successful there's a battle of Blair Mountain though which happened about 25 years earlier and it happened in West Virginia during a lot of the labor movement like and it's really interesting because hardly anyone's heard of it and it's just gigantic it's like the biggest like armed conflict between like government agents and like private citizens in some type of uprising there's like 15,000 people fighting it out with government and there was actually airplanes coming in they had u.s air army air corps flying sort of like over you know doing scouting missions and they had private planes come in and drop bombs on the miners but it's pretty wild and i'm going to compare and contrast those two because i think there's a lot of really interesting lessons you know it's like just because you have a gun and you're armed with your friends like there's a tendency on right-wing people like you look at the battle of athens like yeah we're, we can fight the government and win no problem but then you look at things like the battle of athens which was a gigantic week-long battle and you know the miners lost um there's all kinds of you know like the labor movement history is so fascinating there's so many armed uprisings some of them they won some of them they lost it's pretty crazy but i want to dig into those and compare and contrast and it's like why did the Battle of Blair Mountain fail? Why did the Battle of Athens win? There's some really interesting lessons there, and I'm going to really dissect that. We're going to go over that. I'm really excited for that episode. Another one I'm, I'm doing, and these are the next two coming up, I'm going to really do a dig in on the Redneck Revolt Network, which is the armed leftist network. Um, the, the Antifa armed groups, like the John Brown Gun Club. It's kind of a confusing mess a little bit lefties do that on purpose but like john brown gun club and redneck revolt are kind of the same groups and they choose the name which name they're going to use depending on like local sensibilities but i'm going to really talk about that because they actually harken back they explicitly harken back you know with the redneck revolt is like they're harkening back to the battle of blair mountain and the labor struggles and i mentioned this in episode nine it's like we have a tendency we keep thinking that rural areas are always conservative and have always been conservative are going to stay that conservative and that's not true like especially in the south because there's a history rural, rural organizing during the 20s and 30s in america was huge like rural leftist organizing there was a lot of hard lefty people organizing and you know, recruiting people uh like especially the miners and everything so i'm gonna those are the next two episodes in the season track i have coming up i'm really excited for that one thing that I've taken seriously from the beginning is I've tried to be honest with people about what I think about things and my assessment of what's going on. I think that's very important. I've been involved in activism for 
you know, especially like the MAGA movement type activism for four years. And I've seen a lot of people, a lot of grifters come in and lots of other folks that they, they'll say what people want to hear. Um, I, I really don't, I'm not, I can't do that. I just, I, I think it's important that anyone who tries to put themselves in any type of notable or leadership position needs to be honest. I mean, they need to be positive and they need to keep people motivated and the morale up. But I, some of this stuff that I've seen, you know, from some of these folks, it, it's just not what I am into and not what, not what I want to do. I don't think people need to be delusional about the political situation. Um, and, you know, again, if you, if you listen to my episode seven right after the election, it was like two days later, I really broke down everything that was happening. I was like, hey, folks, look, this is really positive overall. Like, regardless of who wins the presidency, there's a lot of really interesting things happening that are very positive. And I stand by everything that I said in episode seven as well as episode eight. I think overall, you know, the selection, I think there's lots of people that are angry on both sides. I think we have lots of positive things that are happening. Um, regardless of, I hate to say it, even if Biden does get inaugurated, there are lots of very positive things moving forward in other arenas. It's not it's not a binary win or lose. Um, I, I've really, and I see this a lot again, people are either delusionally happy or, or positive and think they cannot lose or they get insanely depressed and think they're lost forever and there's no way to win. Those are, neither of those are helpful. If you want to know more, go back and listen to episode 7 and episode 8 of season 1. I talked about the electoral situation. If you're a regular listener, you've already heard those. And I still stand by everything I said in them. I also wrote a few Substack newsletters at contextualinsurgent.substack.com in November. There's like three of them after the election. Feel free to read. And I stand by analysis. I think the medium and long term for us has some very promising signs. I think that we're in a transition from the six-party system to the seventh-party system, which means the next few years are going to be in flux. Again, I I discussed that in episode eight. I also mentioned it in one of my Substack newsletters. But yeah, it's easy to find. Um, If you've heard it before, I'm not going to repeat it for you. I'm not going to waste your time by going over what I already said. If you haven't heard those, go back and read my substacks or go listen to those episodes. I really go into a lot of interesting different things. But anyway, let's move on. Let me start off by saying this. If you're in Georgia, you absolutely have to go vote for the two Republican senators. I know there's lots of people who are angry right now who are talking about punishing Republicans or don't think that their vote will be counted. Just, just go vote, seriously. Go vote. It's important. Okay. Even if you dislike one or both of the candidates, you have to think strategically. See, the thing is, it's not so much about the candidate themselves. It's about maintaining control of that chamber. If we have a big cushion, yeah, sure, we can afford to get rid of one or two. But when it's this narrow, you want to maintain that majority because that allows you to select the chairmans of the committees and subcommittees. That also allows like people like McConnell to decide whether or not legislation is even going to come to the floor at all. Like There's lots of bad legislation that can die in committee and never actually make it to a floor vote. As long as you have the majority, you can, you can ensure that happens. 
So sometimes, you know, there's people like I didn't like John McCain. But, yeah, it's like just because the fact that someone like that, he at least showed up in caucus as a Republican and would allow us to maintain control of the chamber, even though he did his mavericky stuff from time to time. There was a lot of times that just because we had people, a lot of these squishy Republicans, they them showing up and caucusing as a Republican and allowing us to control the chamber is enough to ensure the legislation never gets in front of them to squish on to begin with. Here's another big thing, and I want you, this is, if you take nothing else away from this, I want you to take this. We have to stop thinking of we're going to vote for these people and send them to D.C. and then just assume that they're going to support us no matter what. That's not how it works. You need, you need to think of you're not voting for someone who's going to back you 110% all the time. What you're doing is you're selecting what you call an amenable authority, which is someone who is sympathetic towards your worldview or your causes, and they're able to be pressured. There was a, Let me give you an example. When Obama was elected in 2008, a bunch of the activist people that got out there, like SCIU and all these other folks, he had a big meeting with them, and he's like, thank y'all so much. Well, yeah, I'm pretty sure he didn't say y'all. That's, that's me there, but this is I'm paraphrasing what he said. He said, thank y'all for electing me. Thank you for the hard work. Now that you ensure that I'm going to D.C., make sure that I do what you sent me there to do. So that, there's actually twofold when you do that. And this is something you see a lot from the right wing. We elect people. They go to D.C. They don't do what we want. And we're like, what the hell? And part of that is because we don't constantly stay on their butts. and We don't constantly pressure them. And it's more than just calling or mailing. That's important. But it's also about having these activist groups. And, and it works twofold. You're, you're also pressuring the politician to do what you want. But the fact that you're out there and you're agitating and you're doing activist stuff for your chosen cause gives that politician political cover to do what you want to do. And that's one thing we, see, we always complain about this. How many times have you heard a Republican person or a conservative person complain like we keep voting for these people and they're conservative and they go to D.C. and they shift left? Well, that's because they go to D.C. and the left has this well-organized and well-oiled activist pressure machine that, and it's not even so much about lobbying. Lobbying is important. We do have some lobbying folks, but it's even bigger than lobbying. It's about this this multi-spectrum pr pressure machine and a, and a science and theory behind pushing people to do what you want to do. The left has that. The right doesn't have, at least the, the grassroots right does not have that. The, the grassroots left does have that. My latest Substack newsletter actually covered a lot of this. I discussed um, a, a piece from David Hines in the American Conservative about a woman named Lisa Fithian who's an old school leftist organizer. She's very knowledgeable, very experienced, and she discussed a lot of this stuff and she especially discussed this idea, this concept. And I see this a lot on the right, like we're just going to vote for someone and then once they're in office, we just forget about them because we don't want to be involved with politics constantly. We want someone else to handle politics for us. That's a recipe for disaster. And she, she discusses it pretty frankly. You have to, when you elect someone in office, again, it's like the little piece I just talked about, Obama there, his, his example where he's like, okay, now force me to do what, what I agreed to do. He's like, hold me to what I promised. 
that's something the left, the grassroots left, understands fairly well. There's the right, the the grassroots right has no concept of this, and there's no, we have no organizations or structures that are really good at it. We have some, we have some, um, mostly in the gun rights area, local and state groups. That's like the closest thing I can think of that we really have for that. But it's really important. Anyway, that's the important thing. Vote for the Georgia Senate. You have to vote for them because that is, even if you don't like the candidates, at least they're Republicans, and we'll have control of the Senate, control of the committee assignments, and there'll be people that are sympathetic towards us that we can pressure. Because I promise you, even if you don't like Loeffler or Purdue, they'll be a lot easier to pressure than Warnock or Ossoff. Let's talk about some controversial stuff, like how about succession and balkanization? That's Those are big topics right now that are going around, and probably worth tackling. I don't think, I mean, the United States is not going to last forever. Like, that's a given. It's going to end at some point. When? No one really knows for sure. And granted, succession, this is something that's already happened before. And, you know, it was rather dramatic hubbub over it. And <laughs> once it was all over, there was a bunch of laws passed, I think, that said, you know, Supreme Court rulings that said it's not illegal. Given that, if enough people want to go and there's a mutual decision, I mean, ultimately the law is, is what people decide it is. So, I mean, I'm sure if enough people decided to mutually go their own ways, we would have a constitutional amendment that said it was totally okay and we'd probably split up. I personally don't think it's advisable and I don't think it's really workable, but not for the reasons that people assume. The most common critique I hear about people talking about balkanization or succession after the legal arguments are made is the idea that, well, we've got blue cities and red rural areas and suburbs so we're too intermingled to effectively balkanize or go our own ways i mean it's true we're intermingled but the idea that that would not be effective kind of misses the point it's not so much about ideological uniformity about only being around people that are compatible with you politically the better argument for you know, succeeding balkanizing however you, whatever word you want to use it is, is power relations. It's like you're removing this, you're removing this emergent property of a, of a federalist overbearing construct that's become very centralized. I mean, the whole reason we have a federal system in the beginning was America was not really, yeah, it was mostly English when it was founded, but it, they were not really compatible English. Um, they were, if you ever read like Albion Seed by, by David Hackett Fisher, it's a really interesting book. Most of the people who settled America in the beginning, it's like they were mostly English and or from the British Isles, but they were these very different, very incompatible sects of Englishmen with different, like you have like the Puritans and the Quakers, and you have the Cavaliers and the Borderers, which they were all, all four of these people were very, very different, and they really hated each other. So federalism was like a way of saying, okay, we're going to work together, but we don't really get along, so here's... Here's a way we can kind of do what we want while we can still collaborate on the big picture things. So it's never been, America's never really been like ideologically homogenous or even like 
like yeah i guess they were mostly englishmen but but beyond that it was like they freaking hated each other familiarity breeds contempt and something that's very interesting when you look back through history is that you start to realize very quickly that usually the nastiest most brutal conflicts no quarters given type of conflict is between two groups of people that are essentially indistinguishable to outsiders so I, I don't think that that criticism of balkanization is necessarily i think it's a valid one i just don't think it's an accurate one even politically diverse area will still be improved by moving from a federalist control for a lot of issues to a localist control localism is almost always an improvement so when people talk about balkanization and succession what they're really saying is they want federalism they want what federalism was originally about was this idea of okay we've got a national government with very limited powers everyone else can kind of organize their society how they wish and that that's what they had to do because they had at least four big main different cultural strains from the british isles here in america with some rather radically different ways and values and and, and ideas of how society should be organized that's really what federalism was about and we've gotten away from that now we kind of had a one-size-fits-all model and so it's not really so much about the political diversity as long as you have enough slack in the system for people to kind of organize things how they want as it is now it's one-size-fits-all and that's really kind of when you have a system like that when you have when there's only one national vision that can be imposed and you've got groups of people with radically different visions for how, what that vision should be, you've essentially engineered permanent conflict into your nation. So that's my critique of the most common answer given when someone claims that they don't think balkanization or succession is workable. I happen to not think it's currently workable, but for a much different reason. My personal critique of why succession, in my opinion, is not workable is just a simple fact that you cannot share a border with a totalizing ideology that has zero compunction for regime change around the world on the most spurious reasons. It's a very reasonable desire to not share a political construct with people that you have irreconcilable differences with, but you have to remember that at least when you're inside the nation or under the same sort of government, you have some sort of remedy, but if you actually leave it, and you're a foreigner, you're on your own. I mean, this is something that the Confederacy learned to their detriment in in the 1860s. Once they at least argued that they, they tried to argue that they were leaving, the Union argued that they were in rebellion, but regardless, once they were no longer members of the same construct, political construct, they no longer had the remedies and protections of the legal schema that they were under as part of the United States. It's really easy to overlook, especially considering we've had 20 years of global war against terror that was originally spearheaded by Bush and the Republicans, but the original call for invading Iraq and deposing Saddam Hussein originated on the European left. Kanan Machia, who's an Iraqi dissident, wrote a book in 1989 called Republic of Fear, where he explicitly called for invading Iraq and deposing Saddam Hussein, and that was on humanitarian grounds. And that was a cause celeb on the left, especially in Europe, all through the 90s. And if you remember the 90s at all, we had invading the Balkans and all that sort of stuff, military intervention there. And there's a good book 
Paul Berman's Power in the Idealist talks about this, and he really kind of does a deep dive and explanation. He starts off with the example of German Vice Chancellor Joska Fischer, who there was in 2001 there was a, a photo that that was published in some socialist European magazines. There were several photos of Joska Fischer back, you know, in 1970 like beating knocking a cop to the ground and beating him up like in the middle of a riot and then it turns out you know 25 years later Yoska Fisher is a politician calling for overseas intervention so leftists especially in this era of social justice and wokeness are more than willing to advocate for intervention abroad and if we actually succeed and formed a new nation with Trump as our president I have zero doubts that they would consider intervening militarily. So I don't really see that as being a viable option at this point. I'm also not convinced that martial law is going to happen. Um, if it didn't happen this summer, when we had the most destructive rights in American history, when, when Trump hinted at military intervention, like he almost got deposed then and there. I don't know if you remember, the military made some very loud noises, especially the leadership, the generals who were saying, we're not going to do this, this is un-American. He got attacked for doing that. So I have some serious doubts that he would be able to actually declare and impose martial law within the next few weeks. So I don't really think that's an option either. Well, if succession slash balkanization and martial law are not currently options, where does that leave us? Well, I think we're going to see tremendous change. I think we're going to see over the next 10 years massive disruption. The we, We're dealing with elites and managerialist class that has basically destroyed their credibility openly and publicly, whether if it's saying one thing and changing it a week later and admitting the, the first thing was a lie or saying one thing and doing something else like... I mean, like, the first thing, a good example, will be the masks. I mean, everyone was saying, don't buy masks, they're useless. And then, like, a month later, like, okay, go out and buy masks. We're sorry we lied earlier. We were just trying to keep supplies up. I mean, you can't do that. Credibility is so important, and you just can't publicly lie to everyone because they're not going to trust you in the future. If you say something else, people are like, well, are they lying now? Um, And then you have, like, Gavin Newsom, who trying to lock down California and then he goes out to like the French Laundry and all these other politicians and like Dr. Burks from the uh, woman who was involved with the COVID council in the White House she was saying one thing and then she goes out and have a big Christmas and Thanksgiving with her family I mean credibility is lost and even if credibility wasn't lost we have seen this year the entire like big tech banking the upper class of the military like you know the generals and everything like the just tremendous power centers in society basically collude to do whatever they could to try to get trump out of office and it didn't it just took the mask off and everyone saw it and people were like holy shit so you've got that you've got loss of credibility you've got i think that's weakness i mean you can't when you're when you're having to do what happened this year Everything that's been done politically is weakness. That's the wheels are coming off. We've had 30 years of Pax Americana, and it never was going to last forever. So 
I think the next 10 years we'll have, like I've said, we're going to have the seventh party. We're going to go into the seventh party system. I think the political system in this country regards of who's in what party and what what the party professes ideologically, I think all of that is going to realign massively. And we'll see what happens. You know, um, We're going to see more change in the next five to six years than we've seen over the last 30. That's my first prediction. One good question is, if you do something like a millet or a pillar, is that separate but equal? Well, we had a big to-do a few years ago about the whole separate but equal thing, and I kind of covered that in Episode 9, the Montgomery Bus Boycott and Rosa Parks. Well, I think the difference is what, what happened, in, especially in the South, with segregation was not separate, and it was not really equal. You had people that were two populations that were kept apart, but they were both subject to the same government. Um, the whole idea of like millets and pillars are there are separate governments and entirely different parallel systems of society, communities that are in the same spatial area, but they have legal systems that are completely separate and they get to govern themselves. And there's actually some examples of that here today that, at least to some extent, they may give us some idea of where to go with that. And that's the Native Americans. It's like they have. There's two different types of reservations. There's like the actual physical reservation that's like a state, basically. Um, they govern themselves and they have the, all the courts and everything. And then there's like the more informal, like unincorporated reservations, which is what was ruled like most of Oklahoma is apparently an Indian reservation. And if you're part of the registered tribe, you're not, you cannot be federally charged. You cannot be, you cannot be, you cannot be charged with like a felony by the local or state authorities. You can only be charged federally or in like a tribal court. So there's some, and you know, Native Americans are American citizens and they have an entirely separate, depending on where they are in the country, they actually have an entirely different parallel legal system for them. Um, they can either be tried by the tribal courts or by the federal courts. So, Again, we're dealing with very speculative things, and the future is working very. The future is working towards being very decentralized, and that's some possible. You know, that's a possible example that may give us some idea of how that works. Something that I've seen other theorists talk about, and I think it's fairly interesting, and there's historical parallels for it, and I'll touch on it, is the concept of like a decentralized tribal network, emergent networks. And there's been some people talking that the state, the nation state, the Westphalian system is going away. And we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I know that what exists now is, is definitely under pressure. Um, it doesn't seem to solve the problems of the age. So probably something is going to change or modify it. But there's actually historical parallels for something like that. Like how do you get people living in a certain area that believe radically different things how do you get them to live in some way that sort of works? And some of the historical parallels are something called the millet system, which was in the Ottomans. The Ottomans had this, and there's something that was in the Netherlands, and Belgium was called the pillarization, which is partly, it was originally based around confessional communities, like religious communities, but also sometimes like political um, factions. They literally had, and the pillarization it kind of hints at what's happening. It's like a vertically integrated social system of, okay, it's like I believe X, Y, or Z. My faith is, is you know, C. So this is my pillar here. This is my group that I'm with. And there would be courts of law and legal systems 
that were focused on those people and applied to them. And if your neighbor was part of a different pillar or millet, they had an entirely different parallel legal system for them that didn't apply to you. And that's something that we've had throughout history. How that actually applies to people that have political beliefs, like if it's just purely political, I'm not sure. You know, we had um, Neil Stevenson in like the Diamond Age. He wrote about something, you know, there was something called files, which were another similar type of topic, another system. So we'll see what happens. Maybe we're going to see something like that. Um, instead of having like succession or balkanization, maybe we're going to update like millet slash pillarization systems and we'll have something like that, more of an emergent network. Something like maybe that, that's a possibility. We'll see what happens. I think another thing we're going to have to come to terms with is we are the insurgents. We've we keep looking at the left as they're the people on the outside trying to get in and take over and we've always kind of implicitly assumed that the institutions were at least many people that I've talked to have, have implicitly assumed that the institutions and everything those were still with us and that and they've treated the left as the insurgents and treat thought of ourselves as the central still sort of aligned with the government or at least like the power center and we're gonna have to come to terms with that. It's like we're not. We're effectively now the insurgents. We are the people who are outside of power, but that's actually not a bad thing. That, that can be a good thing. That gives us a lot more flexibility. If you've ever studied any type of guerrilla warfare or insurgency or stuff like that, is that gives us a lot more options and a lot more flexibility. We're gonna have to learn to take advantage of that. Let me end by saying this. Don't lose faith, don't lose hope. I haven't lost either. One of the most incredible moments of my life was being in downtown San Francisco on election night in 2016 when they called the election for Trump. It was absolutely shocking. It, you know, the city never expected it. They, I watched them, the people that I knew that were left-leaning completely lied to themselves that such a thing was completely impossible, and it happened. And that was something, the election of 2016 was something that would have never been predicted as early as, or as late as, like, say, May of 2015, a year and a half earlier. I had no inkling that was going to happen. No one did. So you have to keep that in mind. It's like the people that are out there that are trying to impose this globalist, woke ideology on everyone, they're not invincible, and they're not even always that smart. Um, a lot of them are very hardworking. There are a lot of very smart ones, but they're not invincible. They're not perfect. They, like all smart people, have a tendency to lie to themselves. And they got blindsided then, um, and they'll get blindsided again. We're seeing this now. The world is shuffling. The pandemic is, a lot of these blue cities and states are being economically destroyed. And industry is moving. People are moving. And, and that's a good thing. You know, there, there's a, a chance that. There's a risk that with the Bay Area especially draining out, they're going to have a lot of very hard lefty people moving around the country, but at the same time, breaking up that echo chamber is a good thing. The last four years have been exciting and exhilarating and heartbreaking, sometimes all three simultaneously, but we've learned a lot, and I think the next four years will be even more interesting. I think the future is still promising, and I stand by everything I've ever said.
it's it's really important for me to try to be honest. I un- unlike these like I was just mentioning earlier, a lot of the expert authority folks are out there they're destroying their credibility by lying for relatively small things even if it's even if it's an easy lie or well I'll just dismiss these people for good still that's destroys your credibility I try to be honest and that's very important for me so that you know exactly what I think and what I believe and yeah I still am excited and hopeful for the next few years I think there's a lot of very positive things that are in the works I think there are some things to be concerned about I'm not at the same time I'm not selling copium or hopium I think there are some things that concern me there are some things that are risky and some downside issues um, there's always those black swans those unknown unknowns but we have to keep the faith I um, anyway I'm gonna leave you with that and I hope you have a wonderful Christmas I'll have another podcast out in a few days. Thank you all so much for following and listening to me. And I am excited to continue this journey with you all.